For you, the listeners of my JavaScript story, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Kyle Simpson. Kyle, do you want to say hello? Hello, everyone. Now, uh, you're fairly well-known in the JavaScript community. I think it was the You Don't Know JS was the first exposure I had to your stuff. Yeah, those uh, three or four years now, I think, since the the first of the You Don't Know JS books came out. That is a uh, six-book series on the deep mechanics and internals of how JavaScript works. Right. And we also had you on uh, JavaScript Jabber not too terribly long ago. Yeah, I can't remember. Time flies, obviously. But yeah, I did do an episode a, a year or two back, something like that, yeah. Yeah, episode 220, we had you on uh, talking about teaching JavaScript. There we go, yep. Yeah, that that was last summer. Man, Time flies, huh? I know, right? <laughs> I actually missed that one. I didn't get to chat with you during that uh, discussion. But anyway, it sounds like you've got uh, an interesting and storied history with JavaScript. And, uh, so yeah, so I thought we could just dive into it and uh, you know get your background. Because I think a lot of folks, they kind of get this idea that people that they've heard of or that they know or that you know have accomplished things like you don't know JS and you know, how, how widely read that is, you know, in your front end master's course and things like that, they think, oh, wow, you know, these people are like demigods. And, hmm. you know, <laughs> I, I'm trying to disabuse people of that to some degree. I mean, you know, people work for where they're at and I don't want to diminish that at all. But at the same time, it's, you know, you, you came from the same place we all kind of came from, right? As far as just being a human and <laughs> all of the hard stuff that people go through and the good stuff people go through. Yeah, I can put people's minds at ease. I am definitely a human. I'm not a bot or uh, as a, a demigod, as you said. <laughs> yeah, so just a little bit about some of where I came from. Back when I was a young teenager, and this would be like late 80s and early 90s in that time frame, so I'm dating myself a bit. But as a young young kid, I got interested in programming because I was hanging out at a friend's house and his dad was a programmer. And we saw his dad working in the den and we went in and asked him some questions. And he said, hold on just a moment. And he went click, 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 click for a moment. And then all of a sudden this uh, screen went blue with a gray box in the middle of it and it had my name in the middle of the box. And I was just 
I was hooked. I was fascinated by the fact that in just a few moments, he was able to make the computer do whatever he wanted. Uh, I had used computers before that because my dad had built computers for clients and I had worked, you know, so I knew the internals, Mm -hmm. but the software side, I didn't know until this moment. And I, I got hooked on the software side of it from that point on. And as young kids do, the programming that I did was like, oh, I want to write a game. So it was like what, you know, these very simple, stupid, primitive games, but right. they were interesting. And I was using QBasic uh, as kind of the first language I worked with. Um, so that would be like 1990, 91, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I graduated from QBasic to Turbo Pascal. Uh, I think it was Turbo Pascal 6, if I recall correctly. And that was the first like compiled language, QBasic being an interpreter language. This was the first compiled language where I could like build a program and transfer it to somebody else. And that was a pretty exciting inflection point. And so it just kind of went from there. I, I, I did some client projects later in my teen years for a few clients and sold them some programs I wrote. Uh, like I wrote a, an inventory and point of sale system for a bike shop that I happened to, to know. So I did some stuff like that and, you know, got, got my feet under me as a programmer. But all of that early learning, you know, especially in the early 90s, that was all pre-internet. So it was very, very much the self-taught from hand-me-down books from a used bookstore kind of thing. And I didn't really have any way to get formal teaching, but I knew I wanted to do that. I was one of those rare few that way back then I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And crazy or not, I ended up sticking with that. So yeah, so so that was my early programming years. And then when I graduated from high school uh, in the the late 90s, I went to college and did a CS degree, started working on a CS degree. And it actually took me quite a while to finish my college degree because I moved in the middle of my schooling and that reset my status. And when I changed schools, so I ended up taking almost two full computer science degrees to finish over the course of nine years. But I did finally finish and graduate with a CS degree. And that was kind of the first formal education that I had around programming and, you know, came right out of school and was like, all right, I know about classes and inheritance and polymorphism and all the data structures, all this fancy CS stuff. I'm ready to hit the ground running. And, uh, I just started looking for programming jobs and I got picked up by a biotech company that wanted somebody to come and write internal applications for them. So I went and uh, my first professional being paid a salary to write code job was was writing a timesheet and payroll management app for a biotech company. So wow. so that's how I got into this stuff. It was not it, it was the hard and ugly path, as I imagine most people go through. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, since you have a CS degree and then you you also mentioned the hard and ugly path. Do you feel like people need to get a CS degree these days? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. It's it's often debated and so I have I have some some opinions on that as you might imagine that that CS computer science is a fantastically important discipline to take seriously. And I you know the path that I took through CS was 
it was an engineering degree at both of the universities that I went through. Uh, other schools approach it differently. Some have it in the School of Arts and things like that. But it was an engineering degree. And so a fair bit of my CS education was really engineering education. And I'm tremendously grateful for that because, to be quite honest, an, an awful lot of the surface level CS topics that I learned, data structures, you know, things, you know, red, black trees, binary recursion, all the, you know, all yeah. those things that you, that you think about, I could scratch my way through with Google searching to reconstruct and do any one of those things most likely, but I don't remember and recall and use a lot of that stuff on a very daily basis. There's a few things mm -hmm. uh, we may get into in our discussion later, but I don't recall a lot of that. But the thing that I do think was most valuable, and I'm tremendously glad that I did get this, was that I think engineering taught me to, as an engineering degree, it taught me not just to be able to get something to work, but to strive to understand how and why it works. And, and I, I, I've often, I'm often quoted when I say this, and, and it's not meant to ruffle feathers, but I have a way of articulating the difference between programming and engineering and that line that people straddle on different sides. And that, that is this, that I think a programmer seeks first to a programmer, developer, whatever title, seeks first to solve a problem and perhaps later understand the problem uh, better. And then I think, but but I think an engineer seeks first to understand a problem and perhaps later solve the problem. Right. And that is the nuance that made all the difference for me. Being trained to rigorously and robustly think about and try to apply correct patterns to solutions. You still have to get things done. You still had to ship shipping code. It wasn't like I sat around in an ivory tower thinking big thoughts. You have to write code, but but understanding what you're doing before you write those lines of code or as in my case, as you line write the lines of code, understanding it, that was the most valuable thing. And so going back to your original question, do people still need a CS degree? I think people need that that I just described. They need that mindset and they need to be trained in that mindset. Is a CS degree the only way to do that? Certainly not. And I would never think of computer science or even any university degree as a gate, like, you know, a gate that you have to go through to, to be successful mm -hmm. or something like that. But it was very, very much the big benefit of it. And I'm glad for that. And I think it's harder in a lot of respects to train yourself that way if you don't go through a CS degree. So I think it's valuable, but not the only way to pick up those skills. Right. That makes sense. I have a computer engineering degree, so it's it, it's the same but different is <laughs> the right. best way to put it. Anyway, um, and I, I kind of hold the same opinion. You know, I took a lot of CS classes for my, you know, in college, and I have a brother that's actually getting a CS degree right now, and you know, he asked me, am I going to use a lot of this? And I'm like, no, but you're going to learn how to think about a lot of these problems. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I think, I think you sum it up. Well, how to think about the problem is, is vastly more important than the problem itself or even yeah. the solution. So. Absolutely. So, uh, you graduate from college, you're working on a payroll system, which sounds like a ton of fun. Oh yeah. No, I love really. working with the accounting folks. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious, how, how did you wind up getting into JavaScript? So 
uh, in college, actually, the first university that I was at, and again, this would be time placing things very late 90s, almost the year 2000. My my university, I was at the University of Oklahoma at the time. That's not where I graduated from, but I was there. And they started up this, um, which we came to later find out was the first public university to do this. We started a completely student-built and student-run web portal, information services portal for all students at the university. And, you know, there was a, there was creative writing components, there was information services, there was online voting, all of this stuff Mm -hmm. that we built into this web portal. And we turned out we were the first big university, public university to ever do that. So that was pretty cool. And that was all web-based. And uh, so I got some exposure. I was just volunteering with the project and I got some exposure writing some JavaScript there. I'd done a couple of other client projects where I'd built them simple little websites and done a little tinkering with JavaScript in like 98, 99. Mm -hmm. And so I had some exposure to JavaScript as early as around 98, but I didn't really teach. I mean, I didn't really take JavaScript seriously at that point. Uh, It was a kind of a tinkering thing. It was like, uh, connect the dots wherever, whatever you couldn't do from the server, just throw a little, sprinkle yep. a little JavaScript in and, you know, make a button work or something. I didn't treat it as a full-fledged programming language. And to be honest, at that point, I hadn't even really learned any programming language in depth. I was pretty good with like C and C++ and stuff, but, you know, I didn't really, tr- I didn't really take JavaScript seriously. So, uh, that first job that I got, which was in between my stints of my degree, that first job that I got was in like 2001 and I, or 2002, somewhere in there. And I, they said, well, we want to build this timesheet system that all of our employees can use. And I was like, all right, well, I know web, uh, I can build that. And I, you know, I knew PHP at the time. So I was like, I'll build the back end in PHP and I'll build the front end in JavaScript. And because I had this, you know, all these data structure teachings, it was like do classes everywhere. And so I basically was mirroring the PHP application in JavaScript as much as possible, all the, right. the data structures for the timesheets and all that stuff. So I was already working with JavaScript in a professional setting as early as 2002. But even then, I didn't understand the language. I just knew how to get it to do what I wanted. Um, if I put these functions here and I called this in this certain way, I got the end result that I wanted. But I, I wasn't thinking at a deeper level about how I was structuring it or anything like that. Makes sense. So, so what made you want to deepen your knowledge then? Because it seems like that's where the you don't know JS came from right in in a in a sense it's it's a winding story as as most are and so it didn't come until several years later i had several successive jobs after that one and i split my time between front end development and back end and often in the lamp stack using php things like that and I kind of liked JavaScript more than I liked PHP, especially in the like PHP three and four days. It was not a great language. It's a lot more mature now, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a great language way back then. Uh, It just it got the job done. And so but JavaScript also wasn't (laughs) wasn't terribly uh, (laughs) awesome back then either. But I just kind of liked JavaScript uh, a little better. And so I gravitated maybe more like 60, 40 to front end work over those next several years. And I think it was 2007 I got a job 
building, it was a user experience job and I was, mm-hmm. you know, building and prototyping the UI for an, for an internet sort of application. And so I was doing not production work, but they would take my prototypes and put them in production. So I was doing production work. <laughs> and funny how that works, isn't it? It happens a lot, right? <laughs> so I was building these widgets and I, I got my first taste of wanting to solve a more complex problem when I needed to do some cross-domain Ajax and there wasn't anything like cores, you know, cross-origin resource sharing. There wasn't anything like that back in 2008. And so I was like, all right, well, I know I can do cross-domain with Flash, but I don't want to build this stuff in Flash. So I want to like use this invisible Flash proxy thing or whatever. Anyway, what it led to was I want to build like basically a JavaScript library for cross-domain Ajax. Right. And I was like, I don't have any idea how to do that. So I'm going to open up jQuery and look at their source code and try to figure out how they do what they do because it seemed like that was a pretty good library. And so I, you know, I'm looking at their source code and like almost the first line of the code uses the dollar sign symbol. And I was like, I didn't even know that was a character you could use for variable names. Is this like some special magical thing? And so very quickly reading the source code for jQuery, I recognized how little I knew about this language that I'd now been writing for almost a decade on and off, you know, but I'd been working as a JavaScript developer and I didn't very deeply know it. And so I, that began a journey of really wanting to learn it more deeply. I started learning JavaScript in the context of talking about it to other people. So I started doing conference talks in 2009. Um, In 2009 and 10, I was wanting to put JavaScript on the server, and this was pre-Node.js and right after Node.js came out, and I built a server-side JavaScript environment, and that taught me a whole bunch about JavaScript, really uh, digging deeper into it, because I wanted to, like, I have a PHP app, but I want to run some JavaScript alongside of it. Well, what do I do? I, I wrote some C++ to make V8 work on the server next to my PHP code. And, you know, so that taught me a lot. And then it was 2011, late 2011, that I had worked with O'Reilly on the HTML5 cookbook. And my editor that I really liked, Simon St. Laurent, he and I were chatting one day and he was like, you know, we'd love to get like a little short 50 page book or so on the topic of closure. And you seem like you're pretty into JavaScript these days. What do you think about writing that little book? And I thought, yeah, I've, I've actually thought about, you know, a couple of small little topical books like that. Mm-hmm. And so we began discussing and in 2012, formalized some ideas around the, it was going to be a, a, a short series of three 50 page books. Didn't have a name yet, but I, that was the plan for what became the UDONO.js books. And so by the end of 2012, that was in full swing and I was going to, I was going to fundraise, uh, do, do fundraising on Kickstarter for it. And, and, uh, I realized that as I started to write those books, I realized that a, there was a lot more that I wanted to say about the language and B, the books really were going to force me to learn a lot more about JavaScript than I ever had. The other motivation for the book series, by the way, was that around 2012, I also started teaching JavaScript. And 
you know, that required me to know a lot more about the language if I was going to teach others, not just, you know, here's how you make this widget pop up, but like I was teaching the language itself. And so I needed to learn it. And I had some, several people ask me in my classes, hey, do you know, do you do all this teaching? Do you have instructor notes? And I'm like, no, I'm just teaching from my viral knowledge that I've picked up about the language <laughs> over the last decade or more. And they said, well, you should write it down. And so that plus the O'Reilly thing was like, all right. And it was the writing of those books. So the, this is a long winded way of saying it was the writing of the, you don't know, JS books that documented my journey to say, I've been uh, playing around with JavaScript for a long time. Mm-hmm. But if if it really is going to be a career of mine, if I made this bet and I want to stick with this bet that JavaScript is going to be important for the majority, if not the entirety of the rest of my career, if it's going to be important to me, then I ought to take it really seriously. And I ought to deeply understand it. And I ought to try to first understand the things that I thought I knew and didn't, you know, fill in the gaps of mine, but then look for ways to fill in those gaps for other people. And and I think I, so this is a, an, an interesting story. I don't think I've told this one before, but uh, as an anecdote around this topic of not knowing things in the process of preparing to write the the third book of the series that this an object prototypes book, I reached out to a guy that will be pretty. He's well known in the community. People will know Jonathan David Dalton, the mm-hmm. uh, author of uh, underscore. I'm sorry, not underscore of uh, Lodash. So I reached out to, to JDD and was asking him because I knew he knew at that point that part better than I did. And I'm like asking him some questions and I just I just look like such an idiot in my questions. And he kind of teased me about it like, you know, you're supposed to know JavaScript so well and you don't even know how the prototype system works. And it was right. like, yeah, you're right. I don't know how this works. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. And so my style is to like break a thing down into its parts and then build it back up. And that's what I did with these books. I just documented that journey. So in a sense that if if it worked for me, I was hoping that maybe it would work for other people mm-hmm. to, to want to go from, I know how to get things done in JavaScript to, I know how JavaScript itself works. Right. That's, that's really cool. And it's it's interesting too. I mean, I think a lot of times and and there's nothing wrong with the approach, but a lot of times we do just kind of accept, oh, this is the way it is. And, you know, and so I can get my stuff done and you know, we don't really think about how it actually works. Like how the prototype system works, you know, just as an example that you put out there or um that you know, this is how this other piece goes together. Or, this is how I think about this particular problem. And yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to to kind of get along that way, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's also interesting to see. Okay, how does this go together? How does this work? What does it do? And I think I so you're you're right that it is entirely valid for someone to have their main focus of their career, and many people do, most people do. Mm-hmm. Their main focus of their career is ship code, get things done and, and not necessarily worry too much about the innards. I'm a teacher, so I'm obviously biased on the other side of that equation. I kind of need to understand it a little more than I need to ship, although shipping is important. So I, I still write a lot of code for my own sorts of projects and Mm -hmm. learning 
kind of thing. But it, it's entirely valid because a lot of people listening are going to be in that boat. They're like, look, my boss just needs me to get the thing shipped. And that's what I do. And I do that well. And I make a good career of it. So I don't mean to say that it isn't sufficient. But one of the biggest reasons why I became a teacher of JavaScript mm -hmm. is because in all those jobs that I was working at, I saw the same kinds of frustrations that I experienced and all of my coworkers experienced. Were, and it didn't even matter whether it was JavaScript or not. But we just plugged away at, you know, it, it was basically everything was just a giant hack. We just yeah. kept working until it accidentally passed the test. And then we're like, okay, ship it. And then we did that again and again and again and again. And it was so frustrating when you're working on a thing that's supposed to take four hours and you're on hour eight and you don't know why. And, and then you're like, you know, it'd be faster if I just rewrote it myself. Like that frustration was constant over and over. Not, I don't mean like on a yearly basis. I mean like on a daily basis, that was the, the status quo. And, and, and it was for so many people around me too, the status quo, that they could get it to work, but it never was quite clean. It was always just a little bit like, oh, well, I don't know why that works, but if I put that variable there, it works, so great. That sort of thing. And that that is okay when you think about happy path-driven development. But I was spending so much of my time not on the happy path, and so many of my coworkers <laughs> were, of, you know, I don't yeah. know... And, and, and it leads back to another one of my assertions that if you don't know why a piece of code works, you have no hope of knowing why and how to fix it when it breaks. Right. You're just going to be guessing. It's blind guessing. You throw, throw something to get the wall until it sticks. And so I part of the reason I became a teacher was to help fix that, to help su suggest that the path to not being continually frustrated and continually unaware of why the thing worked and unaware of how to fix it other than just sort of getting lucky through brute force work. The way to get to a better path is to understand the language more deeply. Yeah, I'm an educator and I'm clearly biased in that way. But I, I took this step back and said, I wish somebody had, had told me, Hey, there's a way to get away from that frustration. And the way to get away from that frustration is to spend a little more time learning your language and not just focusing on the next feature to ship. And that's kind of what my career has become is I, I feel like I'm alongside other developers in the community. I'm providing these resources through the books, through my open source projects, through my online training videos, through my in-person classes. Everything I do is about empowering them to be better at what they do, because it is a fact that everyone is going to be on the non-happy path at some points in their career. And if they want to stumble through it, they can, but I'm trying to help people not stumble through it. And that that's how I would frame the value proposition. Not that everybody needs to go become a quote unquote JavaScript guru, but every little bit that you invest in understanding how it works helps you write better code the first time and fix code when it's broken later. I have nothing to add. I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head. When I started doing these shows, um, one of my co-hosts on Ruby Rogues was James Edward Gray. You know, he's fairly well known in the Ruby community. And he had this encyclopedic knowledge of Ruby, right? I mean, if you wanted to know a method for doing something, he could tell you it and all of its aliases and the, the six other ways that Ruby made made it easy to do it. And what was amazing was that, yeah, a lot of times I'd run into a problem, I'd hack out some way to solve it, 
And then I'd be talking to him about what an awesome solution I came up with. And it would be, oh, well, Ruby has a method that does that already. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and it's the same kind of thing, right? It's, okay, well, if, if you really want to solve these problems and solve them, you know, in, in a better way, I, I hate saying the right way because I'm not convinced that there's always a right way, but there's almost always a better way. Um, mm-hmm. Then, yeah, you know, you... You, you need to you need to learn about the language. You need to know more about it. You need to understand why it does what it does and what the underlying parts are. And and it's ex- exactly your point is just, yeah, you know, then then you know how to fix it. Then you know where the problems are because you know what it's doing. It's not just a, you know, a, a magic thing with, you know, syntax that's hard to read or anything like that. It's not just about the question of, you know, as you just said about is there one right way or are there multiple right ways? That is the axis that I think often gets the attention. But I think there's a different axis that's maybe more important, which is there are a set of ways to get a problem solved. There's there's multiple ways. And some uh-huh. in, in some respects, there's infinite ways to solve any problem, right? So there's a set of ways within practical reason that you can get something done. And I think we can divide that into two groups. There's a set of ways that gets it done, but we would characterize that as more accidental. Right. The the way that it worked, like I just put a global variable there and all of a sudden it started working. We can verify that it in fact does produce the correct outcome, but it didn't really solve the problem. It ended around the problem or it accidentally worked because of some other condition and the accidentally working way of solving a problem, I would, I would argue is the predominant way that many developers fix problems because they don't stop to think about what, what really was the problem in the first place. Right. They only look at the symptoms and they say, well, if my symptom is that it can't find the variable, then if I just stick the variable here, then I fix the symptom right. instead of asking what's the problem. Maybe the problem is something different. And so when I try to help people understand JavaScript better, what I'm really hoping for them to be able to do is narrow down the set of solutions to the set of solutions that are actually attacking the, the root problem mm-hmm. rather than the set of solutions that are potentially accidentally fixing symptoms. Just like when you put a Band-Aid on a cut, you're saying, well, that's going to fix my problem. But what if the source of that injury is much deeper and the Band-Aid isn't going to do anything except hide it from view. So we do this a lot that we accidentally solve problems and then we move on. And it is the accumulation of accidental solutions, accidental partial solutions over the course of time that creates the code debt that we all struggle with in our, in our programs. And it is every time you try to fix a problem, you are now paying the penalty of all those previous accidental partial solutions. And all I'm hoping to do is help people narrow down to the one or few or even many possible ways of solving a problem that actually start with fully understanding the problem. And once you fully understand it, you are much better able to articulate a solution to the problem. That That's extremely well put. I, I, I want to dig into this approach, but <laughs> um, I guess I'll ask one more uh, question along these lines, and that is, so where do you start then? Because I feel like I, I have a passable knowledge of JavaScript. You know, I'm I'm pretty good at Ruby. 
Um, you know, I've been toying with Python and all these other, you know, different systems and languages. You know, let's say that I decide, you know what, I really do need to deeply understand JavaScript. I mean, wh where do you start at that point? I mean, do you go pick up a book? Are there videos? It seems like most of the content out there is still sort of at that surface level, right? It's, it's how to accidentally get more of it right. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> this framework helps you accidentally get more of your program correct. So yeah. use that. Right. Yeah, no, uh, that that's a that's an important question. And at the risk of sounding awfully self-promoting, I hope that my material tries to to stand apart from a lot of that in, in all its various forms. But to say that the book is the right place to start or a video is the right place to start is to suggest that we're all kind of the same kind of learner. And I know that not right. to be true. So that's kind of why my career is is trying to produce material in, in various different formats, because I believe that there's different ways to get to that next level of understanding. And if you are the kind of person that wants to read more in depth and a narrative and a story about understanding something, that's the voice that I used for the books. If you're someone that needs to hear lots of, you know, metaphors and see code examples, then my online training videos on front end masters mm -hmm. and, and they'll give you practice exercises. That's more the style of the course. If you're someone that re needs more hands-on, I can come to your company and teach on-site, right? So th I think there are, are different ways <clears throat> for different people. But what you should search for in any material, because I'm certainly not the only one. There's lots of other great teachers out there. What you should search for in the material and what should, you know, almost in a in an alarm, you know, red flag sort of sense is anytime somebody tries to hand wave over something. Anytime they say, well, you know, if I just if I put this thing here, it works and they don't explain why putting it there worked. They just hand wave over that. Mm -hmm. If they never come back to it, if they never circle back and try to help you understand that to me, the investment in that time won't won't pay off as much. Look for people that want you to understand why. So, so let me give you uh, an anecdote that's totally unrelated to programming. My dad is uh, an accountant and financial planner. And I, so I grew up in the – my sister works with him too. So I grew up with everybody around me like, oh, we're accounting. And, and in a sense, I was disappointing to them because I went into computers instead of into accounting. Right? That wasn't – that was not where my head was. But, but as a financial planner, my dad taught me all growing up. That the the thing that made him most valuable as a financial planner is that when people walk in his door and they have they need their taxes done or they need advice on investment or whatever it is they need to do or set up a small business or whatever, when they walk in the door, they are afraid that the lack of their knowledge is going to hurt them in the long run. Mm -hmm. They're afraid because they know that there's a lot that they don't understand. And so what he said was my job as their planner is not just to say, look, just give me all your finances and I'll do it. I'll file all the paperwork and don't worry about it. My job is to teach them how money works in all these different ways, because if I teach them that this is how your money can work for you in this way, and this is why this investment works, and this is why this is the right way to structure for your taxes, if I teach them that, then they walk out feeling confident that they're being assisted in making the right decisions rather than just 
another black box of their life. Mm -hmm. They're scared because money is like, that's our most valuable possession, right? And I don't want to give that up. And so he, so he taught me that lesson all growing up, that what people really want, and I think it's true of developers, we all have that sort of imposter syndrome sort of a thing. And I think one of the reasons why my approach and, and an approach that others have been able to do too, I think one of the reasons why my approach works is because I empower people to know what it is they're doing. And that reduces the imposter syndrome feelings and the doubt, the self-doubt and the questions that we all have. Uh, and I, and I think that's what you should look for. If you're trying to learn, look for somebody that wants to sit alongside you and empower you rather than somebody that wants to sit up on high and talk down at you as if you can't be trusted with the details. I love it. Absolutely love it. So the you don't know JS stuff seems to be the thing that you're best known for. Are there other things that you've done that you're proud of that you want to talk about? I would say my latest book I would want to highlight. So for a long time, people asked me, well, you did great with those. When are you going to write something on functional programming? And my response to them was, I don't know anything about functional programming, so I can't write a book on it. But over time, I decided uh, that that was a journey I needed to go on. And so similar to how I wrote those books as my journey to learn JavaScript, I wrote and released just this last fall my latest book, Functional Light JavaScript. Did the same thing. They're written for it was written for free up on GitHub. It's self-published, so it's now available for sale. Uh, you can buy it, you know, in ebook form, either on Amazon or on LeanPub, and it's also coming to print on Amazon here in a few weeks. So that I'm very proud of because that represents another multi-year journey that I went on, and I documented that journey so that other people could learn, you know, the benefits of the the foundational concepts of functional programming, but without all the the noise, if you will, of uh, mathematical notation, fancy words like monads, stuff like that. I wanted you to understand the concepts and be able to mm -hmm. line by line appropriate those into your code, incorporate them. So I, I'm very proud of that book. It seems to be getting a pretty good reception so far. And it does not have this, since it's self-published, it doesn't have the same marketing engine behind it as an O'Reilly book would. Uh, but I think I'm maybe even more proud of it because it, it was a lot of learning that I had to go through. So I, so I would highlight that book in particular. I, I've got some other stuff that even since the publish of that book that I've been working on and I can and this is more code related than book related. Uh, there are several libraries that people have known me known about me from. I think for a long time probably the most well-known library was called LabJS which was a script loader. Uh, I still have that on the back burner um, but that isn't where what's getting a lot of my attention these days. I've written several small utility libraries for functional programming tasks and asynchronous programming. But the big thing that I've kind of bitten off lately is back back in the fall, I decided I wanted to figure out how to write my own blockchain and cryptocurrency. And of course, I wanted to do it in JavaScript. And I didn't want to do it just for... The curiosity and learning, although there's a there's a big component of that as there always is for me. But I have a very specific public good, if you will, that I want to do with this blockchain. So I got sick with the flu in the week right after Christmas. And I said, I guess this is as good a time as any to start. So, <laughs> so a little over a month ago, I started building a blockchain 
And uh, I am getting closer and closer to being able to release that and hopefully get other people to, you know, join in that community. But the first thing I recognized when I started building a blockchain was, A, there's a ton of technical things that I don't really know and I'm going to have to go learn. Like I understood the topic of cryptography at a very high level. But when you say cryptocurrency, I don't know what that means. And it's really in intimidating to think about what does it mean to to use cryptography appropriately so that it's this is secure or whatever. Right. And it turns out it's not as bad as I thought. But it really did take some some deeper dive in those topics than I had, you know, deeper than I ever went in my CS degree. Let's put it that way. And so I, there's the technical side of it. But there's also the ecosystem side, because when you build a blockchain, you're basically building a single foundational block upon which you hope that people will create lots and lots of other blocks. Mm -hmm. um, and planning for that in ways, you know, I'm, I'm planning for this to be able to be used in this way, but I also need to plan it that it could be used in a way that I wasn't even thinking about. And there are there are going to be good usages of it. And then there's going to be like usages where I'm like, oh, I really wish they weren't doing that, but I can't control that because this is public. And, you know, so that has been uh, an interesting exploration over the last six to eight weeks for me. I'm I'm getting closer and closer to the point where I have enough of that built that I can invite others in to start helping me figure out the rest of it out. And so that that that's got a lot of my attention these days. I'm writing a lot of code and I'm doing a lot of learning about things that I had not learned about before. Cool. I was going to ask you what you're working on now. So <laughs> well, there you go. That's covered. <laughs> that's that's what I'm working on. I'm working on launching a blockchain. It's going to have a cryptocurrency on it. It is there's a financial aspect potentially, but there's it's really more of a social good sort of a thing, uh, a change the world kind of vision for social good. Um, so we'll see we'll see how it is received once I'm ready to launch it. Nice. I've I've had some thoughts around that as well. You know, Ruby's kind of my tool of choice, but I thought about doing it in a language that I have wanted to learn for a while, but haven't just, you know, I, I know it sounds nuts because it's like, okay, so you have to learn the language and learn blockchain, but <laughs> you know, it, that's the kind of push that usually gets me going. So, uh, yeah, it was, there was an intense curiosity on my part, but I'd never acted upon it. And it wasn't until I decided that, there was not only an intellectual curiosity around it, but something, you know, more important or bigger that I could do with it that, that kind of broke the logjam. Mm -hmm. So it was not only the social good component, but the third thing that I would mention in, in under the umbrella of what am I working on these days is about a year ago, I started in, in earnest trying to build and launch a new startup in the education space. Oh, nice. uh, it's, it's essentially the evolution of my training business to a new format. Uh -huh. uh, the name of the company is DevGo, and DevGo's mission is to build a, a distributed skills mentoring platform, I think is the best way to say it. There's lots of learning ed tech tools, but I think a lot of them focus on the content. What makes DevGo unique is that the way this is being built focuses on building the mentoring relationship on top of the content. Mm 
Right. And so that is kind of the 2.0 of how I want to teach. I don't just want to distribute content. I want to build relationships around education. And that's what the platform is for. And so I was, there was a, in the building and planning of DevGo, and I'm I'm still fundraising, I'm still looking for investors there on that. But in the building and planning of DevGo, you know, a question in the back of my mind where lots of startups were talking about blockchain. And it seemed like if you just mention blockchain in your startup pitch, all of a sudden you immediately got millions of dollars of VC because it's just the new hot thing. Right. Like a year ago, it was AI and now it's it's blockchain. And so I was like, that that's exactly the reason why I don't want to do anything with blockchain because it's just all hype and there's no, you know, there's no real point to it and it's all fluff or whatever. Well, I was, <laughs> I was in the shower one morning back late last fall and I just had this light bulb moment where I was like, there's this problem that I've got with DevGo and if I had the, the blockchain that I can envision, it would, it would be like this elegant solution to this problem that I have. And so th there is not only a social good component, there's not only a curiosity component, but there's also a corporate benefit, if you will, that I that I wanted to build the blockchain. So I so I hope, you know, I hope it succeeds. I'm putting a lot of effort into it and it's uh, it's going to be good. Let, let me just dispel in case anybody's curious. There will not be a you don't know blockchain book. I'm not going to write a book on this topic, but I do hope that maybe the code that I put out can be instructive to people if they want to learn about these topics. Very cool. I have about 10 million other questions on this now, but uh, okay. I, I'm going to defer and, uh, and... Well, we'll just have to do another episode then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The last thing that we do is picks. And you okay. were on the show, so you, you understand picks. Are there things you want to shout out about? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. So I will shout out about a couple of things. First off, I am the co-chair, one of the co-chairs for the Fluent Conference, which is O'Reilly's web conference. It is happening June 11th through the 14th in San Jose, California. We have a fantastic schedule out that's now published and tickets are on sale. And I would strongly encourage anyone that considers them part of the web community. We're trying to build the conference for the web community. And that, of course, incorporates JavaScript, but it, it incorporates a lot of other things besides JavaScript, anything that it takes to make the web happen. We even have some talks and tracks on uh, performance. We have security. We have accessibility. We have a lot of other things besides just your favorite framework. As a matter of fact, th what's interesting about our schedule is that it's 
not as dominated by frameworks as it even has been in the past. It's a, it's a lot more varied and interesting of a schedule, I think. And so I'm super thrilled about that. And I hope people will uh, take a chance to go look at fluentconf.com. We'd really, really love to have people come um, join us at that and, and, and lend their voice to the discussion of what, what it is to make the web the future of the web. Um, and the other thing that I would, uh, would highlight that just from a from a purely technical standpoint i've been working on some of this coding stuff and using different libraries and since i was mentioning cryptography that was this thing that i was like super intimidated by and i was like i don't you know it's going to take me so long to learn all the math and everything well it turns out there's some pretty great libraries that people have built that allow you to do these things without you know, <laughs> necessarily fully understanding all the math behind it. And and one of those that I would point out from from the encryption perspective is a library called Node RSA. Uh, I have begun highly becoming highly reliant upon this library to be able to um, to do public and private key encryption the asymmetric encryption and also digital signatures, it's even more so about the signatures part. So it's it's a really well-designed, solid library. It seems to be doing a great job, and it makes a rather complicated topic pretty easy to grasp. And the third thing that I would talk about, the third library, one of the things that I've been exploring as I've been exploring the blockchain is the relationship between what a blockchain is and what Git. We all know about Git and GitHub. And there are some very interesting similarities between the two. And so in the building of a blockchain, then, you know, the node, the agents that I'm going to, to build, there's a fair need to do different kinds of data persistence. And I decided I wanted to explore whether or not Git would be a useful, beneficial data persistence layer for some of what I've been doing. And I didn't want to just have child processes running the Git command line client. It's very clunky and, and error prone. And so I started looking around and I found a library called Node Git <laughs> that is a set of bindings to the libgit, the, uh, the C libraries for libgit, that allow you to basically do the low-level Git operations directly from your JavaScript code. So you can clone repositories, add and remove files, do commits and things. And just the discovery of this library, it's not terribly easy. It does take some, some practice and experimentation. But just the discovery of this one library has opened up this whole world where now Git is a database for me. I can persist information in Git and I can push that to GitHub if I need to or whatever. So, so now instead of just being able to use Mongo or SQLite or something, now I can use Git and it has some really uh, interesting characteristics to it for certain tasks. So I'm, I'm super thankful to the people that have written both the Node RSA and the Node Git libraries because I'm now able to do things that I could never do before. Awesome. Very cool. I've got a few things that I'm going to pick here. The first one is, is I just, I should find an article on this, but anyway, I've been doing this uh, coaching with uh, a friend of mine, and uh, one of the steps that he puts you through is writing out a kind of a template week for your, your week. And so, you know, I basically schedule out what, you know, where I want stuff to go every week. And, you know, and so today is the my story interviews like this one. 
you know, and then just podcast prep for the rest of the week, you know, Ruby Rose, JavaScript, Jabber Adventures, and Angular. We are getting ready to launch React Roundup and Views on View, uh, which are both JavaScript uh, podcasts on those frameworks. Of course, by the time this goes out, it's, it's going to be really old news because, you know, we're a few months ahead on this particular podcast. But one of the things that this has been really helpful for for me is just envisioning things. And so then on Friday afternoon, I sit down and I get the scheduling done for the week. And so, you know, this week I know what I'm doing pretty much, not every minute, but I, I have a pretty good idea of where everything's going to fall out. And mm-hmm. so really, really digging that. And so, yeah, I have a spreadsheet that I just put it all into and, you know, you just block it out. So it has half hour increments down the left side and, you know, the, the days of the week along the top. But yeah, it's it's been really, really helpful just to kind of envision things. And then I know where everything goes. So whatever it is that I'm focusing on this week, I have. Uh, a strategic time for that on Wednesdays and then yeah all of the other stuff I, I've also had to plan in some other stuff for my dad um, who's having some health issues to be able to like drive him to dialysis or you know go and help him at his house and so it's been helpful just to see where those fit as well but yeah uh, been been super duper helpful that way so I'm going to pick that um, and then one of the other things that it did is it freed me up you know, I feel freed to go do things like work out, you know, so I've been kind of just crazy busy working on all kinds of different things. And by putting it on this weekly template and then putting it on my calendar, I don't feel bad taking the time out to go work out. And so, and I'm still adjusting this schedule some, but, um, I will say that it's, it's also been really great. Um, I went over to Vasa, which is the local gym, um, and got an account or, you know, signed up for, yeah, an account access there. So, um, yeah, just, just hitting the gym is also really important. And I've been doing some other things to, to take care of my health. And I'm probably going to be picking those over the next few weeks. Just some of the quote unquote medical equipment is what I'm calling it, but it's essentially just ways for me to cook healthier that I've purchased over the last little while. So, um, yeah, those are my picks. Kyle, if people want to follow up on anything you're working on or find you on the internet, you know, maybe Twitter, GitHub, or if you have a blog or anything like that, where, where do they find all that stuff? So the best way to find me is to look for my online name, which is Getify, G-E-T-I-F-Y. Uh, that is my Twitter account. That's my Gmail address. If you want to email me, it is my my online name on, on many of the popular sites. So you can find me on GitHub and follow my code. You can look on Frontend Masters to follow my training examples and follow my Twitter accounts for information about books or other sorts of projects that I'm on. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and talking to me. We scheduled 45 minutes. I took an hour, but I think it was well worth it. Yeah, this has been fun. I appreciate the discussion. It's been a good chat. All right. Well, we'll wrap this one up and we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.